and thank you for listening to this week's Dairy Dialogue podcast during a very busy time here at Dairy Reporter. This week I headed down to the Ice Cream Expo in Harrogate, Yorkshire, the first time I'd set foot in my home county in more than 30 years and hopefully we'll have some of the interviews from that event in next week's podcast. I say hopefully because you never quite know how things are going to turn out when you're on the road. And next week I'll be pounding the floor, although hopefully not literally, at Gulf Food. So there should be some interviews from Gulf Food as well on the podcast at some point in the not-too-distant future. So, no rambling introduction this week because there's a lot to get through. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and on this week's programme we take a look at PBD Biotech's new testing technology for TB and other conditions that drastically reduces the time it takes to get test results. We have a chat with Amcor about the very nice new packaging they created in partnership with Danone for some new yogurt launches in Argentina, and with Donaldson Company about their solution to carbon shedding. And we take a look at the weekly global dairy market with INTL FC Stone. First this week we look at an award-winning technology for the dairy industry, Actifage, produced by UK company PBD Biotech. Dr. Berwyn Clark is the CEO of the company, and I first asked him about how the testing has an international scope. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. It's generic, uh, and you know, it's addressing... So at the moment, our technology is addressing tuberculosis, but it does have applications in other bacterial diseases as well. So uh, wherever there's tuberculosis, whether it's in animals or humans, then this technology has potential applications, um, whether it's for disease management or diagnosis or even for sort of food safety purposes as well sure and yeah. and how does how does it improve on existing techniques well it's a completely different approach uh, in fact so the big problem with tuberculosis generally is that the bacteria that cause tuberculosis are very difficult to grow and to diagnose conventionally so the only way that you can detect the presence of the live bacteria is to do culture uh, and that takes uh, depending on which tuberculosis organism you're looking at can take between 8 to 12 weeks from sample to results. So for anybody who's trying to sort of manage the disease or from a food safety perspective, that's just totally impractical. So all the technologies that are used throughout the world at the moment have tried to use other approaches. And the most prevalent approach is to not analyze the presence of the directly infectious organism, but is to analyze the immune response in the animal or the person. So they're all based around uh, what we call serology or uh, cytokine responses. So what we've done is basically taken a completely new approach to the ability to detect the presence of live bacteria. So other than culture, there's no other way to do that. And we've got a technique which we've developed uh, over the course of the last five years, which actually originated uh, in a commercial test that we marketed for human TB. But now we have a test that can do the test from sample to result in about six to eight hours, uh, rather than sort of eight to 12 weeks. And it's really specific for live bacteria, and it's uh, very sensitive as well. So it sort of ticks all the boxes, really. The, the real value of this technology is that it means that you can take any substrate, whether it's blood or milk or urine or water or lymph tissue, anything like that, and you can directly analyze the presence of the live bacteria. So if you're worried about anything contaminating food, for example, you know, whether you've got a mycobacterial infection in water or, or in blood or, or, or milk uh, that's going into the commercial sector for human consumption or particularly if you're talking about milk, uh, where there is a particular need for using unpasteurized milk. 
So we can use our technology as a very sensitive tool for quality control, essentially, to make sure that they're not safe before it goes into the food chain. So that's fundamentally it. it it's the only realistic alternative that you've got to detecting live organisms other than um, using culture. And, and as you okay. said, it, it's the only one, so there's, there's really no, no other competition that can nothing do anything else. as quickly. Nothing else. It was, and and as, as I was just to sort of elaborate a little bit, so originally about 20, the technology was originally developed about 20 years ago um, in, a, in a sort of more antiquated form, and that was the one that was commercialized for human TB. But at that point in time, the, the test was only able to detect, um, work on the presence of TB in sputum, from patients with tuberculosis. Unfortunately, sputum is not really a great substrate matrix for testing because a lot of human patients don't produce sputum at all. So what we've done essentially with the new technology, because we've sort of modernized it and made it a lot more sensitive, then we've been able to actually sort of transform the whole way that people look at mycobacterial infection because I think there was a, in the old days, there was a body of evidence to say that you can't find tuberculosis in blood, you don't, you find it in lung secretions and so on, but actually you can't detect it in blood. Well, the problem was that nobody had a test at that point in time that was sensitive enough to be able to find it. So what we've done there, without having modernized the technology and made it a lot more sensitive and easy to use, then we've been able to go back and readdress those sort of biological questions, and actually we can now find it in blood routinely. It's opening a complete new approach to understanding the, the sort of biology which is underpinning the, the disease and, and, and the issues that are associated with uh, the tuberculosis globally. As far as the technology itself is concerned in terms of the usability, is this something that's very easy for operators yeah. to use or does it Absolutely. Require... Yeah, so, so it is. It's, it's very simple, actually. So fundamentally, the, the readout is, using a, is a PCR system. So what, essentially what we do is that we produce... As part of the, um, the process, we produce a tube of DNA. We take the substrate, we take the matrix that we're interested in analyzing, and there's a, sh there's a simple sample preparation uh, aspect, which takes sort of half an hour or so, and that's the sort of thing that you do routinely in any lab is a bit of centrifugation and a bit of filtration and stuff. And then the bit that we do, the clever bit, which we do using our technology, can be done basically in a single tube these days. And then what comes out of that tube at the end is, is basically a, a solution of DNA, which can be analyzed using PCR, which is, as, as I say, it's a, it's a standard procedure that's used in the majority of labs worldwide. And that, in fact, I mean, that PCR bit is what gives us the inherent specificity because PCR, you can tailor PCR so it can be 100% specific for what you're looking for. So fundamentally, at the end of what we do is that we produce a tube of DNA uh, which you can then analyze for a variety of different mycobacteria. So if you're looking for human TB, uh, you can use a PCR that's specific for human TB. If you're looking for bovine TB, you can use a set for, for bovine TB and so on. There's no requirement for expensive hardware. I mean, if you, the most expensive piece is a PCR machine that everybody's going to have anyway. So basically, it would be very easy for any farmer or company to just add this into their existing arsenal Absolutely. of equipment? Absolutely. So, way, I mean, the way it works at the moment, the majority of the work that we're doing is on milk and blood, as you can imagine. And all of our focus at the moment has been in, in agriculture, simply because it's easier to develop the system and validate it rather than going back into the human situation. So if, you, if, if the farmer's interested in analyzing blood, 
So the vet goes in and he takes um, a standard tube of blood with anticoagulant in it and uh, pops that in the post-room temperature to the lab. So at the moment, we offer a service as well as selling the kits to, to testing labs. Uh, so as long as they get to the testing lab at room temperature, just through normal post within 48 to 72 hours, then the, the sample is perfectly fine. For milk, it's even easier. I mean, there's no need for a vet, obviously. So the, the dairy producer or, or, or the cooperative or whatever happens to be just basically collects 50 mils of milk on three successive days, puts it into a standard milk collection vessel and does the same, just put it on put it in the post, doesn't have to be refrigerated, so there's no cold chain requirements. So it's really quite a simple process, actually. And, and quite fast compared to the previous Much, methods. Well, absolutely. One of, one of the issues with culture, apart from the fact it takes forever, is um, the sensitivity is not great. The limit of detection is about 200 live cells per mil. And out using our system, we can uh, our sensitivity is somewhere between 5 and 10 cells per mil. So it's about 20 to 50 fold more sensitive than culture and one of the other problems that you get with culture is because you, know, you have to incubate these things for such a long time and the cultures often get contaminated with other things and it's a standard problem in you know in large-scale microbiology so it really sort of addresses all the issues that you might be concerned about by using culture it's a real market need because in bovine TB at the moment there's a, obviously there's a major issue in the UK and there are major issues in other parts of the world most of the problems are associated with the fact that the current immune-based tests are really not very good. Even government um, information that's recently been published is saying that the, the, the skin test that is routinely used for bovine TB is only about 50% uh, effective. And we find in some studies that we've done where uh, we're finding about, I suppose, about 65% of animals who are skin test negative. So by conventional gold standard, they are not infected. We can find that they actually do have bacteria in their blood, so they are infected. So a lot of the downstream problems that are associated with bovine TB are all to do with the fact that the current test is not picking up this reservoir of latent infection uh, in, in the national herd. Uh, and that's a global problem. You know, it, Although it's exacerbated in the UK because we've got such a, a, such a high incidence of bovine TB, but that's the same in other parts of the world too. You would expect as well that this would be something that's of major significance to milk supplies in emerging countries? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, particularly those that don't use pasteurization, because, you know, you, you talk about places like Ethiopia, for example, where they typically don't use pasteurization, so they use, you know, fresh milk straight from the animal, basically. This technology, in fact, is probably more powerful from that perspective than it is for the disease management, because... Um, the milk test is, is, is really quite straightforward because you don't have to involve the vet and, and the processing of the sample is much simpler. And at the end of the day, there's no sort of variables in there. When, you, when you're analysing an animal's blood, then you, there are all sorts of other factors that are involved. So, you know, whether the fact is uh, whether the animal is infected with something else or whether there is, you know, the, the animal is stressed and all those sorts of things that, that complicate things. The milk test is really foolproof, for, for want of a better word, that... Uh, you can so we can what we routinely do now and we're working with some big organizations in north america both in canada and the u.s is that we're doing so-called bulk tank milk testing where a herd obviously when that when, when they're milked in the morning so um the, the the milk is all mixed together so we can test the milk to make sure that um, there's nothing suspicious in the milk and if there is then we can then go back and look at the individual animals to find out where that's coming from and in terms yeah. of cost effectiveness 
statistics are pretty frightening. I mean, in the UK, we're looking at costs associated with bovine TB are over £100 million a year. This is a real means to uh, alleviate that problem and eventually eradicate it from the national herd. So it's not an expensive test. I mean, it's the same, same sort of price as some of the more sophisticated immune tests that are used. So we think from a disease management perspective, the, the sensible thing to do would be to run it alongside the skin test at the moment. It's always better to have more than one test run at the same time because uh, it gives you more confidence in the outcomes. It's not going to have any sort of material cost effect and ultimately it's, it's going to have major economical benefit down the line, both in terms of animal productivity. You know, the animals um, will be more healthy. They'll be reproducing more milk. The milk will be clean, so you want to get rid of it. You won't have to cull. There will be no compensation uh, issues and those sorts of things. And, you know, and do keep in mind that a lot of people think this is only in the animal sector, this is only about bovine TB. It's actually equally applicable to this, this other mycobacterial disease in animal called um, paratuberculosis, which is called Yoni's, causes Yoni's disease. Globally, Yoni's disease is at least as big a problem as bovine TB. And there is no test, there's no skin test available for Yonis, and that's equally concerning for the dairy industry because there are some indications, and there have always been indications, that potentially ingestion of parity B infected products may be associated with human health problems like Crohn's disease. So that's still uh, not fully, uh, fully demonstrated, but, uh, but it is a concern, and most of the big dairy organizations and, and the manufacturers and the supermarkets, for example, are quite concerned about the presence of live parity being in the food chain. Global packaging company Amcor has partnered with Danone to develop a PET jar for cold-filled dairy products. The transparent 200ml jar was developed for Danone's La Serenissima's yogurt, sold in Argentina. And we chatted with Rodrigo Licotte, Vice President, Commercial Division, Amcor Rigid Plastic Latin America, about the partnership and the product. I started by asking if Amcor was working with Danone on worldwide product development or if this was just for the launch specifically in Argentina. Well, the project that we have communicated as part of the press release that we launched a couple of weeks ago, that was specifically in Argentina. So we are, and that was, uh, I mean, we started in Argentina with that project. We, now we have many, many, many other projects related to this one or similar to this one that we are working at, at a regional level. We do have a global relationship with Danone. And here in Latin America, we do business primarily in Argentina and in Mexico. This was an Argentinian project, but very much likely to start replicating in other geographies as well. So what was specifically new about the product so this was i mean it, it was new in many ways um this was new because i mean danone launched a new product uh, a new yogurt product in a new packaging uh, configuration right so from a development and innovation point of view i mean this was this was really uh, something completely new for the for the argentinian market and i would say that probably even at the regional level this is a, a yogurt which is 100 percent natural and um, in a PET container, which is a, a material which is sort of a new trend coming in into the dairy market. It, it was truly an innovation for, for Danone, and, uh, and we were very happy to work with them and work together and collaborate in this strategic project for, for Danone in Argentina. Right. It's, it's very attractive as well. It looks, um, looks very different too. 
It, it, it is very different. I mean, it has a very clean look. I mean, I think that they try to tackle this new market trend in which we have consumers looking for more healthy, healthy type of products. Uh, although this is sort of positioned as a, as a, as a sort of a premium product, and which, which I think it looks like a premium product, and it, it is, a, if you want a, a premium yogurt in the market, very appealing for the consumers, right? I mean, we believe that uh, PET packaging with all of the characteristics and benefits of PET really reflects uh, a premium look and feel for the consumer. At the same time, I mean, that freshness look that consumers are looking forward to get. So uh, I, I think that we're going to see a, a very interesting trend uh, in the market probably getting accelerated in terms of uh, customers like Danone and others probably launching similar concepts. What's its sustainability and environmental friendly uh, characteristics like? Well, you're touching one of the probably I would say one of the most relevant elements of, uh, of I mean of this type of packaging. The sustainability footprint of PT packaging is way more convenient than other traditional materials that have been in I mean in yogurts and probably in, in, in other dairy subcategories uh, for many 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 years. So this PET PET jar is 100% recyclable, and the good thing about PET is that there already exists a recycling stream, not only in Argentina, but almost in every country, which is not the case for other types of materials. So this is a product that will go to the recycling stream and that will provide a huge benefit for everyone, right? For the planet, for consumers, for customers, for everyone who's really concerned about making a, an impact in the market. So the sustainability aspect of the PET packaging solution is really a key driver, I think, for, for Danone as well. And of course, Danone is also very well known for its commitment to the environment. Absolutely. Danone is a very sustainable, conscious uh, company, a very responsible company in this, I mean, in this regard. And um, they have released also a, a public pledge in sustainability some time ago, same as we did in AMCO last year. We were the first uh, packaging company to release publicly uh, a sustainability pledge. And uh, we are fully committed to, to really achieving our sustainability goals and helping customers like Danone to, to achieve theirs, right? So the migration to this type of materials with PT uh, is really easing the decision of customers to, 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 to improve the sustainability footprint of their portfolio. So, so we are delighted that we're seeing this trend growing and growing, not only in Argentina, but at a regional and at a, at a global level. And in terms of the collaboration itself, was that... Uh... Danone coming to you with, with a concept, or uh, did they ask you to come up with the concept yourselves? How did it? How did the collaboration work? Yes, um, this was a this was a project that took like more than two years from from the idea to execution. So there was a very strong level of collaboration as we normally do with our customers, and we have engaged with with Danone in all of the steps of the of the process, right? From from a design, I mean, starting probably with the design and rendering different prototypes to testing, qualification, and now full production. The beauty of this solution, uh, I'll tell you, is that we have been able to provide a full packaging solution for, for Danone in yogurt, in PET. And this is uh, something that is very important. It's at the core of our strategy for, for the dairy market. So by bringing a full packaging solution, we, we are simplifying the decision and the whole process for the customer to, to launch this type of new products. 
or, and also to ease the decision of migrating probably existing products that they have in other materials, most typically in terms of forming or other materials like uh, high-density polyethylene. And uh, the fact that we can bring a one-stop solution approach and a turnkey solution for our customers in, in PET packaging with a full approach, that, uh, that has been also a tremendous value for, for Danone. And, and is this something that will extend to other projects as well, this particular packaging? Very much. Uh, we, we decided some time ago, a couple of years ago, that dairy was a strategic segment for us. And we started building capabilities since then, not only on the commercial side, but on the R&D side, on operations, manufacturing. So we are really dedicating truly, I mean, investments, uh, real investments, behind building the right capabilities for dairy because we are seeing a trend, a very uh, sort of a fast increasing trend of customers moving towards PET in dairy. Some of the research we did some time ago showed us that probably more than 70% of the new launches, product launches that we were seeing in the market uh, at a global level, they were in PET. So there's a, there's a trend uh, to migrate to PET packaging for, for dairy products. Uh, we are seeing that, and we expect to see many more projects like this one in Argentina and in other regions. We are already engaging with the known in, in other geographies uh, with similar initiatives, and we expect to see many more <laughs> in other countries as well. And you don't just work with the known, of course. There are other companies that you would be creating products for as well. Absolutely, yes. We have a regional footprint, uh, and actually we work at uh, dairy. It's, it's a global, I would say, it's, it's a strategic global market segment for, for Ancor as a whole, but focusing specifically in Latin America, yes, we do business with uh, many dairy companies uh, across all of the countries in Latin America. So recently we have had also a lot of success in Brazil, in Dominican Republic, in Mexico, in Peru, where we are growing in the dairy category. This is a very dynamic market. We see dairy as a sort of a mature market. I mean, we've, we've seen the, this market segment sort of swinging between growing cycles and probably some declining times. Definitely, we see that there's a call for, for action in terms of innovation. And um, I think that projects like the one that we were talking about in Argentina with, with the known launching this, it's a, it's a great testimony of in, in what direction the market is going, right? So. We have a lot of activity. We continue to invest behind the segment. And, uh, yeah, we look forward to continue growing and supporting our customers in this journey. And, and I suppose with the product that did launch in Argentina, it's proof that innovation doesn't have to be um, static. You can come up with interesting designs and interesting new products that are also more environmentally friendly. It doesn't have to be that because they're environmentally friendly, that they have to be more boring, I guess. Absolutely. No, absolutely. I think one of the beauties of PET is that allows us to provide the customer with alternatives of packaging design, um, and new, new, new shapes, which probably in some other materials is a little bit more difficult. So the, the flexibility that PET provides in terms of bringing innovation to the market, making the product more appealing to consumers. What we were mentioning about the freshness, right? I mean, I think we, we are seeing a, a very strong trend in terms of consumers looking for healthy products, fresh dairy products. Uh, PET provides you with all of the benefits where you can transmit all of these attributes uh, to the consumer in a way that probably with other materials is very, very challenging. So this coupled with the sustainability aspect that today is becoming a massive trend, I mean, and not only for consumers, everybody in the industry, it's, it's uh, 
committed to, 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 to making this planet a better planet, a better place to live. PET, it's, it, it, it's truly a key solution, I mean, for plastic packaging. Donaldson Company in the US has created some new stainless steel filters to prevent carbon shedding. Richard Jaskowiak, product support specialist with Donaldson, gave us some background on the issue of carbon shedding and how the company's new filters deal with the problem. Let me start in the beginning. Um, pasteurized milk ordinance uh, was a FDA kind of ordinance on uh, how to pasteurize milk, and it, I mean it's a huge, huge document with a ton of guidelines on you know how to do certain things within dairies. And basically, they have sections that are devoted to steam filtration. I mean, pasteurizing of milk, obviously, and different types of, I mean, all sorts of processes within the dairy industry. And so what happened is that this document was written so long ago, and they con they consistently up it, but uh, you can never update everything. You know, back when they wrote this document, they um, allowed for um, carbon tube filtration on steam lines um, because it was the best technology available back in the day. Uh, things have changed pretty drastically um, in terms of uh, filtration technologies and you know what's best, and even the standards have kind of changed now with uh, 3A kind of stepping in and writing some more uh, strict standards for what people should be doing today. You know, 3A is just a, is an organization. It's not an actual law or anything like that that people have to follow. But basically, um, some some of these large dairies wound up with these carbon tube installations in their uh, facilities that are kind of like legacy systems. And uh, they've been noticing some uh, carbon fines um, winding up in their final product. So uh, they'll have milk in a storage tank, for instance, and they'll see um, carbon particles, or what they call black sand, mixed in with the milk. Um, and they have traced that uh, that issue back to their uh, carbon tubes um, that they're using to filter their steam, and the, the tubes are uh, shedding carbon particles down line of the filter and uh, winding up in the final product. Okay, and obviously that's not a good thing. No, no. So I shouldn't say it's a it's a health concern. Um, I want to be clear on that um, because I mean carbon is a pretty inert element. So it's not. I, I don't believe that it will really hurt anybody. I can, um, but it is one of those deals where if you you know bought a yogurt or a jug of milk or something and you found some uh, black particles in it that you know are visible with the naked eye, you you wouldn't be too uh, too thrilled with that, and it could really do some uh, some damage to your brand reputation if uh, if something like that were to happen. So you work with dairy as well as other beverage companies? Correct. So uh, we do um, our, our target um, with uh, within Donaldson Process Filtration, our target market is the food and beverage industry, which would include dairies, obviously. Uh, so we have some a number of, uh, of large clients that uh, have these carbon tube installations in their facility, and they've been having these issues with, with the carbon shedding. And um, in an extreme case, a situation of water hammer actually um, shattered one of their carbon tubes, which carbon tubes are fairly brittle. If you drop them, they could crack and break. And so when it was when the when a carbon tube was hit with uh, with a water hammer, it actually shattered and just you know all of those carbon fines go down line from the filter. But they've been noticing these issues and uh, they notified us and you know we 
basically um, used our current technology, which is our, our steam filters are all made from stainless steel, so they're non-fiber releasing, non-shedding, um, and they comply with the uh, 3A standards for culinary grade steam. And we designed our filters to fit into these legacy housings to minimize the, the investment by, for our customers in order to become um, more up-to-date with, uh, with regulations. So they don't have to change out the housing installations. They don't have to uh, do anything but uh, drop in a new stainless steel filter into the uh, existing installations, and they shouldn't have any future carbon shedding into their uh, process. So I assume, therefore, it would be something that would last a lot longer as well? Correct. Our media structure, I mean, not to get too technical, is pleated, um, whereas the carbon tubes are just like a cylinder. Um, so by pleating the media, we have um, much more surface area than, uh, than the carbon tubes. So that tends to correlate to longer life over the carbon tubes. Um, and not to mention our, uh, our elements, our stainless steel elements are uh, cleanable. So they can be um, cleaned using an ultrasonic bath. Uh, which would uh, remove majority of the contaminants from the filter itself, and then uh, it can be dropped back into service. So their life, lifetime for these filters, I mean, it's, it varies um, based on you know, the amount of contaminants that you have in your process that the filter is capturing and things of that nature, but uh, it should be significantly longer than what is uh, than the carbon tubes. Sure. Would efficiency be a concern here, and would these be more efficient than the carbon? Yes, there's two different ways to think about efficiency. There's energy efficiency, in which case um, energy in my world correlates to a differential pressure. So the amount of force that's required to move the steam through the filter, and uh, we measure that in the PSI. So if upstream it's um, 100 PSI, let's say, and then downstream it's 92 PSI, the differential pressure is, nine, is 8 PSI. Well, in our testing that we've done comparing our elements to the carbon tube elements, we're seeing an 8 times reduction in, um, in differential pressure, which correlates to energy savings, electricity savings, because you don't need to to push the steam as hard as you would um, with a carbon tube. Now, the other way to think about efficiency is uh, in terms of how effective it is at capturing particles of a certain size. And the way that 3A the, um, has defined culinary-grade steam, well, it needs, it needs to have 95% of uh, particles 2 micron or larger removed um, from the steam. So uh, the filter needs to be at least 95% efficient at 2 micron. Um, and our filters are 99% um, efficient at 2 micron, 99.9%. So we exceed the culinary grade standard for efficiency as defined by 3A. Now, as far as you mentioned that it fits into the, they don't need to, companies don't need to redesign in order to be able to utilize these filters. In terms of being cost effective, obviously they last longer, but is it something that, uh, that companies can do easily, quickly, and cost effectively? Yes, um, I would say so. Um, I mean, in terms of ease, uh, we've, we've tried to make it as easy as possible um, in terms of designing these filters to fit all in the existing housing. So when you're doing your next plan change out, uh, you can, instead of putting a carbon filter in, you can put a stainless steel filter into the same, same housing and uh, achieve better results. They do last longer. And um, to be frank, the, I mean, a stainless steel filter is going to cost more money up front than a, uh, a carbon tube filter. However, the, the benefits are going to be in the lifetime, the lower efficiency or the lower um, energy costs. And then the real big benefit is preventing any sort of scrapping or rework or you know removing carbon fines from your product downline um, that's really what a lot of our customers were 
obscene was that they had carbon particles in their product, uh, which you either need to scrap or somehow remove those carbon particles from you know your product. So that's going to create an extra step of work, uh, which is going to be exponentially more expensive than just placing a new filter up you know in the steam system. Because it's cleanable and because it's more effective and efficient, would there be less downtime with these? Yes, uh, you wouldn't need to change them as frequently. So you, theoretically, you wouldn't have to you know, do the shutdowns like you would with a, uh, with a carbon tube. So there should be less downtime by using these filters, correct? And what else do you do within the dairy industry? In terms of other products that dairies use, when we do a lot with sterile air. We do a lot with uh, sterilizing um, water, not only used as an ingredient, but also used for product recovery in dairies. We do a lot with steam filtration, creating culinary-grade steam for cooking, pasteurization, direct product contact, um, sterilization of filters used throughout the facility. So um, that's really the breadth of our product offering is the compressed air uh, and gas, liquid and steam filtration targeted at the food and beverage industry. And now it's time for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with INTLFC Stone's Charlie Highland. Okay, just a quick recap of the European dairy markets this week. Um, I seem to say this most times I'm on this call, but another roller coaster week. We, we started butter moving down quite aggressively, certainly on Tuesday into into Wednesday. Um, we've moved from a prices of about 44.50 down below 4,300 euros per tonne. Most of that move seems to have been started at least with, uh, with some very aggressive physical offers coming particularly from Poland as cheap cream prices in, in Poland were resulting in quite competitive um, butter prices which changed sentiments to be quite negative. Now, uh, we kind of got down and traded just below the, the, uh, the 4,300 level, down to about 4,250. So as soon as that happened, more buyers started to return back to the market. And actually, it didn't take long for it to rebound all the way back up to the current trading level of about 4,400. So really big swings in the week, and we've actually ended up back very close to where we started the week. So I think the the big question marks at the moment are what's the global demand picture going to be like? There's a big trade fair on uh, next week in Dubai called Go Food. And the question mark is, will, will the Europeans uh, be selling aggressively on the world market? And if they do, especially for butter, that could leave us in a situation where we have uh, some tight product. At the moment, world market prices are converging. So it, over the last number of years, there's been a significant premium for European butter compared to the rest of of the world, but that premium has really disappeared and, and right now we're very much on par. So if there is good sales concluded physically in the next uh, in the next week or so, there's certainly a, uh, a possibility that exports will be stronger out of Europe, which could leave us tight on stocks towards the end of the year. On the skim milk powder side of the equation, that's been quite stable for the week. Uh, we've Over the last number of weeks, we've had some good signals from world market demand. The GDT auction um, last week was very strong, which highlights the fact that there is good appetite um, both from China, Southeast Asia, and even the Middle East who have been buying uh, quite good volumes of physical skim of powder in the world market. So that's where it keeps the situation on skim of powder fairly stable at, uh, at reasonably high prices compared to the last few years. 
That's great. Thanks a lot, Charlie. INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's all we have time for this week. Join us again next week for another Dairy Dialogue podcast. Thanks for listening.